Today we'll be discussing life on the road for comedians, and we'll be discussing the influence of big pharma on medicine. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and then grills me on that topic. Let the grilling begin. Well, hold on. Today, we'll be discussing life on the road for comedians. We'll also be discussing the topic of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on the prescribing practices of doctors. Ali, I want to talk to you about something serious before we get started. There's this controversy that's been going on recently. I know you have, I, you and I have talked about it. We've been texting back and forth with some of our friends about it. I really don't know how to address this. I'll just come out and say it. There's a big debate going on when it comes to chicken wings. You get a plate of chicken wings, and there's two types of chicken wings. There's the drums, which look like a mini drumstick, and there's the flats, which have two pieces of bone. And... There's a big debate going on about which one is the better option on that plate of wings. And I, of course, thought it was obvious. It's so obvious, I didn't even know why it was a debate. It's clearly the drums. And you say... That you're clearly out to lunch. Look, it's clearly the flats, but it's a win-win situation for me. I'm happy. You're, you are disgusted that you know me. That's not how I'm going. I'm like, good. When we go eat chicken wings, you and I compliment each other like peanut butter and jelly all of a sudden. You know, I mean, this is great news. This is what I used to tell people when they were like, why don't you eat pork as a Muslim? I'm like, what do you care? More, more pork for you, buddy. <laughs> he won't be in the breakfast sausage line at the buffet at the hotel in front of you. This is a good thing. Celebrate the good. Listen, I'm just saying, if there's a debate, I don't see why the flats are more... Okay, okay so because the drum, I think, has more meat on it, and the flat is so difficult to eat. If we're eating together, don't get me wrong, I'll eat the other ones, but if you're saying that there's a binary choice between one or the other, it's clearly the drum. Like, it has more meat. I'll hear. And the other one is so hard. Here's the thing. I would bet that anybody who understands their way around a chicken... For example, a chef or, or even a cook, a home cook who's well acquainted with making chicken or meat in general will have no problem. I don't understand what's hard about it, but that's because I've been, you know, cutting chicken since I was a teenager and then doing it professionally for a while. So the way to eat a flat, it's not very difficult. Now, I love the fat of a chicken wing. It's like that crispy fattiness and there's some meat and it's great. And I can eat all the meat off both those bones and I can look at it and be like, that's a job well done. I have accomplished something. Yeah, you're proud of yourself. There's been times in my life where I had nothing to be proud of, but I could still be proud of my chicken wing consumption. So there's also more surface area and I like hot, spicy wings. So there's more of that space that collects all that, you know? Oh, God. Yeah, that, that's the argument for the flats is that there's more surface area and so more you get more of the coating, you get more of the sauce, you get more of the fat. And so that's why people like it. I mean, I just don't, you know, and then some people have this stupid argument. They're like, well, if you wanted drumsticks, why don't you just order a whole bunch of drumsticks? I'm like, yeah, I guess I could. Is that commonly served in restaurants? Actually, I'm, I'm saying that, but in, in British pubs, it actually is commonly served. Uh, <laughs> uh, but as I counter my own argument. <laughs> and sadly, when we were having this ridiculous conversation via text with our friends, I had to look it up, as did everybody on the text chain, to kind of combat each other's arguments. And on most of the surveys that are done, Ali, do you know who usually wins, drums or flats? Tell me flats, buddy. Tell me flats. Unfortunately, is I think is biased by those professional chicken wing eaters. <laughs> like, you got the pros. They don't represent the average person. Okay, listen. How do I put myself in the shoes of you pedestrian folk? I can't do it. I'm I'm up here. You're down here. You lowly chicken eaters. I can't connect with you. Exactly. exactly. You, you're professionals. <laughs> so listen, we're talking about some serious things today. We're talking about the stress of life on the road. We're talking about the pharmaceutical industry and its relationship with doctors. 
But really, this is the issue for this podcast. So please send us your comments, <laughs> drums or flats. of Omaha. That's right. The first music you heard was a cover of Bob Seger's Turn the Page by Metallica. That's from Garage Inc. from 1998. The second music you heard was Ali's cover of Metallica covering Bob Seger. But could you tell? Could you tell that there was a stop between? Probably not. So that song is about life on the road, a very famous song by Bob Seger. And so I just thought that would be a good introduction to this topic that I want to ask you about, which is life on the road for a comedian. You know, normally during non-COVID times, you're traveling all the time. And so I, I was curious about some of this stuff. So why don't we start off with how you started off? So did you start off in comedy kind of just locally and then branching out? How did that work? So I started in the city of Montreal where I lived. You know, there's a lesson in this. I'm going to tell a quick story to people there there's a huge lesson in this there was a there was a place called jimbo's uh it was a pub and above the pub jimbo's was the comedy works which eventually became sort of my my home my comedy headquarters i would go there it was my school even if i'm not performing friday and saturday i would almost always be found there watching the headliner from new york or la or, or more likely new york or boston that's who we got and toronto coming in and i'd watch these performers keep people engaged for 45 minutes and i'd watch how they do it and i'd learn it. anyway i used to do the open mic up there you just call and you say hey could i get on this monday it's ali hassan and you know sometimes you do sometimes you don't it's a night, you know, there's, every city has these. It's an open mic night. There's anywhere from 10 to 14 people on a show. I would get on occasionally. And I remember one night it was canceled. Just not enough people showed up. Like three three audience members showed up. And I said to the sound guy, oh, man, Mike's going to be pissed. And Mike was the guy who would call you. You would call a number and then a guy named Mike would call you back and be like, yeah, you're on. And the sound man goes, why would Mike be pissed? I go, well. It's Mike's club, isn't it? He said, Mike doesn't own this club. Mike's a booker. I said, who owns this club? And he said, Jimbo. Now, Jimbo, I had no idea owned the club. So what had I been doing? I had been hanging out with Jimbo, drinking with Jimbo. I'd come on a Monday to see maybe I could get on if somebody didn't show up. I'd be singing karaoke with Jimbo, arm in arm. Older man, you know, this dude was in his late 50s. I'm in my 30s. Mm -hmm. Oh, so not Jimbo Jones from... The Simpsons, that's... Yes, good way to clear that up. Yeah, he came to life. This is Jimbo, who was like a, you know, like a low-rent version of uh, Frank Sinatra. He aspired to be Frank Sinatra. And we would sing Frank Sinatra songs. Now, had I known that he was the club owner, it would have been a very different relationship, right? And that, it's just, it's a great lesson to just be yourself with everybody. And because I was so relaxed and calm and I'd been singing drunkenly with this man for for months before I found out he was a club owner it really helped me in the club it really helped me be you know now not every club owner likes that some club owners like no there should be a divide you are the employee I'm the but that was a great home for me and that's when I started. so this was my path first the open mics then hosting the open mics that's that's work you're hosting a show with 14 people on it. You're coming back on stage 14 times. You're trying to, if somebody doesn't do well, you have to bring the crowd back up. If somebody really does well and they're high energy and the next comedian is very low energy, you have to be a bridge between that. And you learn that. And you, sometimes you don't know who these comedians are. And you're like, ooh, that was bad. One guy was like electric energy and the other guy was very monotone on stage. And so... Yeah, it's, it's an incredible place to learn comedy. From there, the next step was, let me try to get on open mics in other cities. And Ottawa, your hometown, was the first place I did that. Obvious choice, two-hour drive. 
and then it was Toronto. And so people hear about this kind of stuff and they go, wait a minute, so you would drive to Toronto for an open mic? And that is something that's done. You know, I know the guys from Toronto would drive to Ottawa. So we're talking about four, four and a half hours just to do a six minute set. And that sounds insane, but that's kind of what you do, not just for the stage time, which in itself is super valuable, but to get on the radar of this club, of the owners, of the staff, because, you know, your goal is eventually to headline that club. And so I was able to do that in Quebec and Ontario to, 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 to a fair degree. And then the next goal is like, how do I travel across Canada? And so there are these organizations that book you and, you know, you're constantly pitching to them. And then finally, there comes a time where they go, OK, we'll have you and we'll do a Medicine Hat, Alberta. Then you'll go to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and then you'll go to uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. You'll do maybe four shows on a sort of a comedy tour. And that's tough. Those are audiences. You know, this this country, Canada, is not a monolith. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. audiences are different. People are different. They have different things. So if your jokes are very local or regional and you head out to another part of the country, it's a real trial-by-fire situation. So you don't think about that when you start because you're like, hey, I live in La Salle, Quebec. I'm going to make – I have 10 minutes on La Salle, Quebec. Huge mistake. So a couple follow-up questions about that. The first is – People are probably wondering, well, how do you go from open mics to getting booked? Like, is it just making phone calls and stuff like that? Like, how does that work? Here's a tip I have for people who might be listening who are aspiring performers. You do your best every single time you're on stage. That should be that should be a common, you know, that that should be common sense, but it isn't for everybody. It's always be ready to do your best and don't be negative right? That's somebody that nobody wants around. That's immediately like, oh, this night sucks. There's only five people here. That level of like negativity and entitlement, nobody wants that around. So if you are a good person to be around and you always get the job done, you can now approach a club owner and say, I'd like to do weekends. Now, when you do approach that club owner, my experience has been the worst thing you can possibly do, which many people do, is I'm ready to do weekends. When are you going to have me on weekends? I'm ready. Because every club owner is like, I've been in this business for many years. Why don't you let me tell you when you're ready, you piece of trash? Stop telling me that you're right. So in my experience with a number of club owners, it's always been my goal is this. I'd love to achieve that goal. Can you tell me what I need to get there? That's always been a better way in my in my experience. And, you know, if you look at my career, I think, you know, it speaks for itself that I didn't have. There's some club owners that will never have you on, right? In the city of Winnipeg, there's a club owner that just, this is not what he looks at. And you have to be willing to accept that as well. You have to be willing that this particular person, some of them even reply to your email. They're like, hey, listen, man, I'm, I'm keeping my eye on you and I'll get back to you. And then that's sort of the end of it. You follow up and nothing. Some never respond. They have their, you know, it's no different from, let's say, the Judd Apatows of the world. We've spoken about this on the show. Judd knows Seth Rogen. Judd knows, let's say, Aziz Ansari. Judd knows this person. People go with what they know. Are they going to take a chance on this other guy, you know, coming from here? Maybe not. But that's the way to do it. So I went from an open mic to would I be able to open on the weekends, right? Now, that's that's a big, that's a graduation. That's a really big transition because open mic, people's expectations are super low anyway. As I said, it's sometimes 14 people on the show. You're running around. But if you can show some semblance of control in that environment, you can be looked at to do an opening spot on the weekends, meaning you would, on the Thursday show, you do five minutes after the host. So you typically have the host start the show, bring on a you know special guest or a guest act or opening act. That's you. You do five to seven. Then there's a middle act who does 20 to 25. And then there's the headliner who does 45. That's typically the format. So to be, do that opening spot, usually you should have been doing pretty well on open mics. And once you do opening at weekends in one city, you can sort of pitch yourself to other cities and other clubs. Hey, I'm an opener. I'd love to open at your club. So then getting back to what you were saying before, now that you're pitching to other cities, but then you said you kind of dealt with a booker who kind of, so would a booker book you say in like 
the prairies of Canada. So you would go to like Saskatoon Medicine Hats and do Regina and do like a loop there. Would they take care of that? Or you're putting it all together. You're like, okay, I'm going to pitch myself to this city and then this city, then this city, then this city. So you could, I guess, yeah, I mean, fly both out there options. and then you drive around or rent a car. How does this all work? Yeah. I mean, both options exist. I went with a booking company and a booker. So that's somebody who, You'll never see them at these clubs. They may not even be in any of the cities that you do on a five-city tour, but that's just relationships that they have with clubs, and they say, we have this person, what do you think? We'll book for this weekend, this weekend, and they, they, they have a whole calendar of just booking comedians. That's what they do. Other people, much more resourceful than I was, will do their own tour. They get three comedians together. And then they drive, they drive a car into the ground. They drive, they put on hundreds of hours in a car and tens of thousands of kilometers in bars and pubs and, and that's, there's a risk there. You know, there's a risk that you get there and like, oh, you don't have a stage. Oh, you don't have a microphone. That's interesting. I assumed when I said <laughs> I was going to do comedy, you thought, so you get to these cities sometimes on like a 12 to 20 city tour and you learn a lot about I didn't book this properly. I don't have the experience to have done it. And this club just saw an opportunity to make some money and they don't care about comedy at all. That happens too. But you really, you know, as I say, you really cut your teeth in, in environments like that. All these different cities and one tour and getting to know that life because it's not for everybody. Yeah. And so I guess this is, this is what we're talking about is this, Going from one place to another, like, and I guess it's just these logistics that I keep wondering about. So as you talked about, like, where do you stay when you go on these booked tours? Are things paid for? So is your hotel paid for? Is your transportation paid for? Your meals paid for? Are you doing it all out of pocket? And what is the, I mean, you don't have to tell me exactly how much money you made on these tours, but like, are you actually making money or is this like a money losing or is it break even just to get exposure? Some people make money. A guy like myself who was so incredibly bad with money wasn't making a ton of money. Elaborate. Well, I think you know me. You know, like, yes, your, your accommodations are almost always paid for. Some comedy clubs have a condo or an apartment, which they rent for the headliner and the middler. If you're an opener, you're just coming through. Yeah, spotlessly clean. I'm assuming those ones must be just. Uh... Oh God, yeah. No, they're not. Uh, they're not for everybody. You know, I used to bring my own pillowcase sometimes just to just to make sure I didn't have to. Yeah, uh, but it's no different from a hotel in that sense, right? They have people every Monday or Tuesday cleaning up the place. Usually, it's a comedian or somebody who works at the bar staff. Oh, those people clean. The, they get paid to clean the condo. exactly, okay, right. exactly. And you're like. <laughs> Oh, that person doesn't even wash their hands after making 10 drinks. That's the person cleaning the con. You do a little bit of math. You're like, the condo's probably not that clean. That part is accommodations are typically almost always paid for mm -hmm. when you are middler or, or host. So let's not, maybe not even middler, a host or a headliner for sure. Okay. What's not paid for is the food, mm -hmm. which is where mm -hmm. things go awry for me personally, because some comedians could survive on one meal a day and that meal being the chicken fingers and fries or the you know whatever lasagna or whatever the club serves oh, right so they, the you get a free meal there or yeah now not all clubs have that the ones that do will give the comedians a free meal and so some of these guys it's like a part of the passion it's part of the challenge of comedy how little can i spend that is, I was raised by a spendthrift father. Uh, you know, it's like he never left the house without coming back home with something. Look, I picked up some bagels. I picked up some fries. I picked up something. And it was like there was a joy in that as his son. And still to this day, if I leave with my kids, they know they're going to get something on the way. We're going to pick up something. And every time we come home, my mother goes, was that necessary? My mother, my wife. Wow, that's a weird slip. <laughs> oh, <God>. My wife, <clears throat> like my mother. <laughs> that's going to be another show in a couple of weeks, I think. <laughs> that's, that's a medical condition that needs to be examined thoroughly. But yeah, so I, I'm, you know, I want to eat breakfast and I want to eat a good breakfast. And sometimes it's at a diner. But sometimes it's at the, the hot, new, cool place in town that these hipsters just opened up. And then I want to eat lunch. I'm not going to wait till dinner for lasagna. And typically, I wouldn't even, 
Like if I was doing a whole week at a club, let's say like Tuesday to Sunday, mm-hmm. I come in strong. I come in like I'm going to save money. I'm going to go back with money. This is stupid. I need to make money. And so I'd eat the lasagna at the club on a Tuesday and then I'd never eat at the club again. I'd be like, ah, I tried. But yeah, there are ways to save money, but that really depends on your own personality. Mm-hmm. The joy of this is is really the hanging out with other comedians, right? That's That's the joy. But also... You're paired with a headliner. Sometimes that's not the best, you know, and I'm, I feel so blessed to have been paired with such great people, but I know the horse. I know my friend, Steph, I'll tell you, Steph told a fantastic comedian who's in LA now. She was paired with somebody who was an older dude who smoked a lot. And she said every morning for 45 minutes, she thought he was going to die and she'd have to lie in bed going like, Hey, what do I do? Cause he'd be in the bathroom just coughing up a lung right. and that was his morning routine. And I know that routine cause that was my father's routine. So that's horrible that somebody has to go through that. Another guy I know had money stolen from him from, you know, the person who was headlining, who was sharing the condo. <laughs> Another person, that, my friend, Iman, Jerry Seinfeld is a real jerk for that. Ah, Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, watch Jerry's that's name. Why he's a billionaire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> stealing money from people's socks. <laughs> And then my friend Iman, who you know very yeah. well, Asif, Iman was once paired up with a with a headliner. This is an American touring headliner. That's his career. He recently started dating a girl. I guess she was in she was somewhere in the you know northern U.S. and he's from Texas, and he's in Ottawa, sharing a condo with our friend Iman. And his girlfriend gets incredibly jealous that he is sharing a condo, even though you're not in bunk beds in the same room. You have your right, own yeah, separate course, rooms, yeah. and then there's a common oh, yeah, room. Yeah. But she was so insanely jealous that Iman never saw him once. He had to. He was not allowed by his girlfriend to socialize, and he had to go and just shut his door and talk to her, and he would have to talk to her until he fell asleep. So he was in like this weird relationship. And so, yeah, it's not always fun, but I've been, I've been very happy to, I'm very blessed to, have some great times. That said, I knew that when I was doing these gigs, you know, in like Medicine Hat and these casinos and stuff, I was like, this is not what I want. I always wanted to move up to theaters. So even even small theater, even a 250-seat theater, it brings in a different quality of people. You don't have to have the bouncers coming over and being like, uh, Miss, sir, you have to keep your voice down. Why? We paid money for these beers. You know, like you don't have to deal with that kind of stuff. You don't have to deal with hecklers. You don't have to deal. I love doing comedy. I love doing comedy and I loved entertaining people. And I didn't want to be a babysitter of drunkards, you know, so I, I always wanted to move up from there. So for me, it was a stepping stone. I think that's important. Some people are like, this is what I always wanted to tour all the time. And I think they find that tougher when they're dealing with unruly audiences. Right. So you brought up a couple interesting points. One is this life on the road. Don't you think that there gotta be people who just love this? Like, I'm not saying you do necessarily, but there's gotta be people who love this town to town, just going, you hear this a lot with some professional athletes, mainly, I would say, performers, like we talked about Bob Seger, Metallica. Some of these guys, they just love the road. They get antsy when they're at home and they can't sure. really deal with that. They want every night partying and going to a new place. And then they sleep in, get up, do the next thing, and then just keep like lather, rinse, repeat, you know? And right, do, right. Do you, have you met a lot of people like that? Like, this is their life. They love this being on the road. Yeah, it's a little bit different from for, for, for comedians. I can't imagine enjoying that, you know, you're on a whatever 90-day tour and you're like, what city are we in again? Like that, you know, that musicians will go through that. I think that's very more that, that that's much more infrequent with, 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 with comedians. It's much more infrequent. There are the, you know, the Russell Peters of the world, the Sugar Sammies of the world that leave for like maybe a month, two months. But I actually love the road. I love it. I love it because it's only maybe at most two weeks and then I'm back home. And after I leave and come back, my wife's always like, you know, you're always a better father after you've been away. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I agree. And you were the best father when you weren't there. That was actually the best. Yeah. Well, she literally has said 
we benefit from your departure and you benefit from your departure. So whatever that says about my parenting <laughs> skills, let it be. The other thing that you brought up, which I want to ask about, is these places that you've that you've played at. So you were talking about bigger theaters and things like that. So let's maybe talk about some of the bigger venues and maybe some of the, like, what's the most far out place that you've gone, whether it's out of North America or mm. where have you been? I performed in Edinburgh. Okay. That was a bit of a nightmare for a variety of okay. reasons. The Edinburgh Comedy Festival, you just never knew from day to day, will it be four people showing up? Will it be a full room? Full being 30, it was a small room. But, you know, every day they'd be like, oh yeah, you only had four people because it was raining last night. You'll be great tomorrow. You'll be great I'm tomorrow. not sure why mm -hmm. raining, was, like it's indoors, wasn't it? I know, I know. Well, people just aren't leaving their house or their apartment. Okay. Yeah. Next day... Sunny, beautiful day, two people show up. <laughs> and then they're like, ah, oh, you know, it was it was terrible everywhere. It was terrible everywhere. Next day, full house, 30, 30 people. I'm like, I, I made it. I'm amazing. Next day, seven people. You're like, oh, maybe the 30 didn't like it. And they told everybody. This is an emotional roller coaster wow. that was awful. But I love being in Edinburgh. I love some of the people I met. I love the late night socializing that I was doing. I really like that. In Canada... I would say the place I like the most, I really, I do like the West Coast quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I really like the West Coast. And my favorite is like the Okanagan area and you, Kelowna, Penticton. If you've ever been oh, to yeah. these areas, is a great along the Okan Okanagan River. And then also in BC in the interior is a place called Nelson. And Nelson was just a wonderful theater. They were great people. They came out on a long weekend. I didn't know anybody there. And then there was like six people I went and hung out with afterwards. We had some drinks. Oh, from the audience? in touch with them from the audience. Yeah. yeah. So right. it's like the ideal situation. So other people maybe went to Nelson and got punched in the face immediately and then mugged. I had the opposite experience and I had a great time. I got a standing ovation. You know, you can't take that away from me. That's always going to be Nelson for me. So... I really like that whole area. That's that's my favorite place to travel to. 2022, baby! There you go. Uh, so Nelson, B.C. sounds very exotic, but didn't you tell me you went to the Middle East once to do comedy? The Middle East of Canada? The Middle no, East of right. the world. I did, I, did go, I did go to the Middle East. I can't believe... Oh, my memory's well, failing me. That was the best. This is a big shout-out to Nelson, B.C. You liked it more than it's traveling internationally. I mean, I loved it in Canada. You know what? Jordan, Amon Jordan, I went mm. twice. Twice, yeah. And that was the best. That was the best. Both times, I mean, just, I was also new in comedy. I was only two, three, four years in, and I went to this Amon comedy festival, and the way we were treated and the joy this is this is the key this is why comedy right now there's actually this fun thing happening comedians are anxious to perform audience members are loving it they're so anxious mm -hmm. to hear live comedy that's the way it was in the middle east you know it's it's like you know there's cities in every in every country when the big tours go whoever it is whether it be music or comedy whoever people don't usually come to their city so when people do come to their city, you know, Tom Power is a friend of mine. He's host of a show called Q on CBC Radio. He said anytime somebody comes to St. John's, they're so happy because mm -hmm. St. John's, Newfoundland, that's costly, mm -hmm. right? If you're a band, five people, roadies, whatever, that, that costs a whole lot. You're adding a whole lot more. Sorry, people who don't know, Newfoundland is an island, so it's not easy yeah. to get to. You need to either yeah. fly in There's or no take bridge. a ferry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when people come... They appreciate it. And I felt like the, the Middle East was like that back then, especially, you know, it was like this, the sort of the wild west of comedy. It was just starting. People only knew mm -hmm. it from the internet, but they knew it very well. They were just so appreciative, uh, both, both the bookers, the promoters, the, the, the audience members and the comics were so happy mm -hmm. to be out there. It was a, it was a real time capsule. I think if I recall, you were going, it was around the Arab springtime as well. Not springtime, but the Arab spring it that kind just, of yeah. change in the Middle East at that time. I think it was around then. It was just before that. It was 2007, and, uh, sorry, 2008 and 2009 that I went. Yeah. It was a great time. Maybe you going incited the Arab spring. I think that's I think, probably. I think you can lock and print that.
All right, Asif, this is something that has plagued me and others. Mm-hmm. Some of us, uh, maybe it hasn't plagued. It's maybe just intrigued us. For me personally, the influence of pharma on doctors themselves. This is not about big pharma and medicine and, and the larger, broader conversation. We will have one of those episodes as well. This is really in doctors' lives. I, I really want to know about that because I remember... You know, I thought you get a pen, right? Mm-hmm. You get a nice Merck Frost or Pfizer pen, mm-hmm. and that's how they stay top of mind. I had a friend, dermatologist, who was brought to Whistler, British Columbia, on a ski trip by a pharma company. Mm-hmm. Like, I know whining and dining, but he was flown from East Coast to West Coast and wow. stayed in Whistler and skied. And that was how the, this pharma company, uh, that's better than a pen. That's better <laughs> than a pen. Unless you don't right. ski. Unless you could kill yourself on a ski hill. That's good. But it just, it really, I, that's where I'm coming from with this questioning. Why do they do it? Is it fair that they do it? Should they do it? Let's let's cover that whole yeah. thing. And and what has been your experience yeah. in this? Obviously, you you would not be immune to to doctors. I mean, sorry, a pharma reps coming in and you know whining and dining and flirting and and, and titillating you. Well, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. So let's just start at the beginning. So let's just start with my experience. Okay. So when I started medical school, there were a lot of rules that were not in place then that are in place now pharmaceutical influence on students and doctors. So we'll talk about how those rules came in place over time. But when I was in medical school, you know, you would see, you'd get like a bag, like a free doctor's bag with a bunch of different like logos on it, you know, not like a terribly nice bag, like a canvas bag you get, like maybe if you attended a conference or something like that, but you'd get and get those at school. And then uh, I remember we got a free textbook. I'm like, oh, okay. So I actually went and pulled out this textbook. I'm like, do I still have this? So I found it. It's First Principles of Gastroenterology. Okay. So oh, one of my favorites. That's right. You you read this every night, do you? You have a mm-hmm. copy? Yeah, read so, it to the kids a couple of times. And you say, oh, it's that's great. It's sponsored by the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology. Awesome. So I got a free textbook. This is like, uh, I don't know, 600 pages of a textbook. Uh, well, that was great. I remember very distinctly getting it for free. Don't think I've opened it because I'm not a guest. But let me ask you this. Where on that book does it say that pharmaceutical company's name? It says it on the first page. <laughs> okay. When you, <laughs> when open, you open it, it's it, kind of stands in there. underneath Canadian Association of Gastroenterology, it says Astra Pharma Inc., so mm-hmm. we would get these types of things. All and does the time. it say courtesy of or from your friends at, or it just says their name? That's it. It says sponsored by the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology and yeah. Astra Pharma Inc. Got it. On the, okay. Like, so it's subtle. It's subtle. Yeah. It's not a big, huge stamp on it or anything like that. So, you know, you kind of get these things. And then I remember when we stopped doing our in-class stuff and we do our rotations, which is called clerkship in medicine. Uh, when we did our internal medicine service, which is when you rotate through all the subspecialties in adult internal medicine, uh, mm-hmm. every day there'd be a lunch. There'd be a talk and a lunch and a hot lunch every day. And so, you know, everybody would rush to like, you know, finish what they were doing in the morning so they could attend this, this hot lunch. And every day it was sponsored by a different drug company. Now, And maybe this is me defending myself in that, but I didn't know who the drug companies were and what products they made. Like, I really had no idea. You just wanted your hot lunch. But but some people would argue that that that's actually the point, right? This subtle influence of pharma. They're just there. They're not really, you know, hammering things in your face about their drug, but they're they're there. They're all there. They're sitting in the back during the lectures. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Then in residency, again, remember in medical school, like a free lunch, as you said, like we have no money, like we're in debt, like this, that's pretty good. Then in residency, again, you know, making some money, but still living in Toronto, still had debt to pay and things like that. They would be drug dinners sometimes. So drug sponsored dinners where they'd have a speaker. You'd go to the talk and you have a really nice meal. And these are specifically for residents or also for these practicing doctors? Mainly for practicing doctors, but they're like, well, residents can come if they want. They, oh, okay. they, and this, these were okay. the rules back then. Okay. They have changed over time. 
So I would go. It was some of the best restaurants in Toronto. That's how I tried most of the top restaurants in Toronto by going oh, to wow. these drug dinners, and and they move around and, and do a different one. I would say there's probably every month or so we would go to something like that. And then I remember once I was at a conference, and one of the drug reps, I don't know how I ended up talking to them, but they invited me out to a dinner, and it was at one of those high end steakhouses, like a Ruth Chris or Morton's, you know. Yeah, sure. And it was just me, the drug rep, and like three doctors, okay? And I could just tell when I was there, like, like these are practicing doctors, and I'm just a resident in pediatric neurology, like I'm a nobody. And these weren't people who were working in an academic center, they were working in the community, right? Mm -hmm. So there may have been a bit more interaction with drug reps. And like, you know, just to give an example, they're like, yeah, let's just order a lobster or two for the table. How about that? Lobsters were a hundred dollars a pop at right. steakhouse. So let's just order that for the table. Like just extravagant amounts of money. So then, you know, as time went on, I was like, and then you go to those conferences, and at a conference, a medical conference, there's these booths that are set up. Okay, and they have different things at the booths. And sometimes when you're a resident, you'd be like, I'm going to see how many pens I can get from different places. And booths <laughs> give little things. So sometimes they give like little models of the brain, which I can use in my clinic, or they give pens, or they give like, often, sometimes they're giving out ice cream, like free ice cream or frozen yogurt or something like, well, of course I'm going to go get that. They'll just do anything. And then, but I always felt gross. I didn't want to talk to them. So I tried to like go take a pen when like nobody yeah. was looking or when they were right. occupied talking to somebody else because then they want to talk about their drug and i'm not not that interested in talking to them about hey it. is your booth on fire do you smell smoke and then you quickly get an ice cream and run away <laughs> that's right you know as time went on i just and also i don't need free ice cream you know as i started to start practicing and things like that i now was making more money and i've been paying off my debts and i'm like i don't really need this i can go to a nice restaurant and i don't need to have to sit through this talk in, in a drug room and the, you know there are definitely physicians who are known as being in bed with with the drug companies and drug reps like we all know who they are our colleagues very few of them work at my hospital or at an academic center and i'll explain why that doesn't happen anymore so very rarely associated with universities in that way but a lot of i, I definitely know a lot of people who like the drug companies, again, pay for their trips and things like that. This all goes back to your bigger question. Like, why would they do this? And we're talking billions of dollars a year is often spent on marketing. So the marketing right. budget from, from companies is, some studies say, 5 to $8 billion a year in North America. And mar part of the marketing is this marketing specifically to doctors and these drug reps coming in. And why do they do it? Because it works. There's no other reason why you would do, why you'd spend that kind of money. Now, these doctors who you said you know them, right? Everybody knows of them. They have a reputation for being in bed with pharma. Do they do this with the justification that, well, it's available, so why not? And it's free, and it's not like they're influencing me anyway? Are they, is that what they would say? Yeah. Okay. So that that's a good point. I don't really know. I don't really know. Maybe some of them are like, why wouldn't I take free stuff and a free trip? you know, maybe for myself and my family. I, I don't know. And I'll, I'll talk about some of the rules that are in place in, in a second. But people don't think this works on them. They think I'm too smart for this. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll feign my ignorance. I, I remember when I was a resident medical student, I didn't know which drug company made which drugs. So if I was going to a dinner, I'd be like, oh, that's a great dinner that we're at. But I didn't really correlate it with this company makes this drug. But I think, you know, over time, now I do know that. And, and certainly sure. a practicing physician who's been there for a couple of years knows which drug rep is peddling which drug. So there's some evidence for doctors doctors not thinking it works on them. There was one study from JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2007. They talked to departmental chairs, okay? So this is the heads of departments in medicine. And more than two thirds of them thought that having a relationship with industry or pharma would have no effect on their professional activities. Mm. And uh, there's another study from a few years before that in the American Journal of Medicine where they surveyed residents like myself at the time. And then they said, Residents generally hold positive attitudes towards gifts from industry and think they're not influenced by them. And no kidding, you would think it's positive. I just told you a story about how comedians are not eating until they get their free dinner. Right. 
chicken fingers at a club. You guys are getting lobster <laughs> for the table? No kidding. You'd have a positive feeling uh, about but, it. But you, but doctors have this fallacy all the time. You, uh, this is a slight aside, but doctors also think they, they think for some reason to be blunt that they're better than everybody else. And then they're like, well, this would work on somebody else, but I'm smart. This won't work on me. I know. Well, that's what we all have to deal with as friends and family of you. Austin, <laughs> well, right? Exactly. That arrogance it's, is, it's, is it's part and parcel. You know, doctors are also terrible with financial matters, but they think because I'm smart and I'm a smart doctor that I'm smart at finance. You're not smart with this. Like, <laughs> don't pretend you are because the majority of you are not. You can't all be good Shots fired. Shots fired at his colleagues. Okay. fired at every other doctor including myself let's talk about some of the scientific evidence for this amount of pharmaceutical influence on doctors and whether it works or not so ProPublica, you know this website news organization ProPublica, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they studied the 50 most prescribed name brand drugs in medicare and this is for things like diabetes glaucoma hypertension so common diseases on average, doctors who received payments from drug companies prescribed 58% more of a drug than doctors who did not. And the payments could include money for delivering a talk, consulting fees, sponsored meals, sponsored travel. And in the U.S., these things are more tightly regulated in that they must be disclosed more than in Canada. So that's why ProPublica was able to get some of this data. So also Global News, which is a news organization in Canada, they did a really good series a couple of years ago, which looked at this same issue in Canada. So they found out that between 2017 and 2018, the 10 largest pharmaceutical companies in Canada gave more than $151 million to both doctors and hospitals across the country. And remember, that, so the like I said, the U.S. has legislation that you need to disclose this, as do many European countries, but Canada does not. So you don't need to limit it, but you need to disclose it. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. In the U.S., it's the Physician Payments Sunshine Act, which is any doctor who receives any transfer of value, so gifts or cash. Aforementioned trip with the family, that exactly, kind of stuff you have buddy, to say. Yeah. Exceeding $10 must be disclosed by law. And then that mm. information is publicly available. So if you looked at that in 2018, $9.35 billion was paid to physicians and teaching hospitals in the U.S. Mm, so wow. huge amounts. But in terms of whether it works or not, a couple studies. Another study from the journal The American and Medical Association from 2016, and I'll just call that JAMA because there's a couple of JAMA articles we'll be talking about. They found that industry-sponsored meals of less than $20, less than $20, this is a bag lunch at a conference, were associated with an increased rate of prescribing the name brand medication that was being promoted as part of that. Mm. 20 this is nothing, but you know. Yeah. You see that, doctors? Huh? Doctors, you think it wouldn't work on you, huh? Exactly. Another study published in 2018 shows that U.S. counties that had doctors receiving more payments from drug companies that made opioids had higher overdose death rates okay and that's probably a whole other conversation about the opioid crisis and the absolutely the, and how the pharmaceutical companies have been implicated in that another study looked at from jama also looked at faculties of medicine and when they put restrictions on drug reps they found that more generics were described so just to recap when a drug comes out, it's a name brand drug for several years, and then eventually it's allowed to be made by generic companies. Generic brands cost less money to the consumer, so to the patients, right? You and I. Uh, well, you and me. You know, I, get, I take medication too. So <laughs> um, too much information. So generics cost less money to the system, right, in the U.S. to Medicare, Medicaid, and to Can in Canada to our provincial health systems. So putting these restrictions helps. And and then again, there was a systematic review that was done. And it found that essentially, they basically found that giving these gifts affects prescribing behavior and contributes to irrational prescribing of the company's drug, when, even mm -hmm. when a generic would be cheaper, even when another drug would be better. So it's pretty clear that this occurs, and it does influence the behavior of doctors. Well, this is also interesting to me because, you know, I had, uh, you know, I used to have a girlfriend. I lived with a woman who was a doctor. One of my, you know, childhood buddies is you. Another childhood buddies is a dermatologist. I've, I've been around doctors for a long time. It's pretty unanimous. You all find drug reps a little bit of a nuisance. 
Right. And I also know a couple of drug reps, one who was like she was willing to drive off a cliff every day. She hated her job so much because she hated being so intrusive and treated like a nuisance. So where inside all that, again, anecdotal, not evidence. I'm just going by what I know. Some drug reps, some doctors, drug reps who hated being drug reps, doctors who didn't particularly care for the drug reps to, reps to come. And yet still, how does all these free, these free samples get through and how do all these? Yeah. So these are all good questions. And I'm going to try and do this without maligning a whole industry of people. But again, I have a friend, similar story to you, who was a drug rep. And she is such a nice person. She just couldn't behave in some of these behaviors that or she couldn't engage in some of these behaviors that she just thought were kind of slimy. And she so she didn't she was one of the lowest uh, in terms performing. of performing people. So it's it's a tough game for sure. So, but what do doctors think about it? Most doctors see drug reps. A 2009 survey from Prism Healthcare sent only seven percent of doctors do not see drug reps, so ninety three percent do. Oh, of the people who see them, eighty eight percent see say they see them for information, and eighty five percent say they see them for the samples. So. Let's just talk about the samples because you brought that up. The samples are an interesting marketing tactic because, again, and, and we don't – at my hospital, we don't receive samples from, from drug reps. That's just a blanket statement. That's a policy? Because it's a very subtle marketing tactic, right? It's a mm -hmm. gift. You think you're doing something for the patients. Like, oh, I can get them this free drug. Like, that's good. The family doesn't have to pay for it. But eventually, the free samples run out. Some drug companies I deal with do, however, do have compassionate coverage, and and they do supply expensive drugs for some of my patients for free. This is very, very oh, nice good. of them, and I do appreciate that. So again, they're not all evil or things like that. They do have a lot of these programs which help out a lot. So, but what do you do once you've been on it for a while, right? The free sample medication now it's expensive because you run out of your free samples, then you have to buy it, right? And drug. This is proper drug dealer. This is drug dealer uh, behavior, right? First, you entice them with a little free sample, then they have to come to you to buy. Uh, yeah, I see. And how it goes. Uh, you know, drug companies they know exactly. They have databases that know who is prescribing what. All the drug companies know what I prescribe in my area is in my geographic oh, area. Wow. They know all my prescribing habits. And that's why and so eventually some of them not a lot of them have, but they've been subtly sometimes told me, Yeah, I notice you don't prescribe a lot of this. What why is that? And uh can we talk about this? Those are pretty bad drug reps. Oh, you gotta love that. You gotta love so that. This is my oh, so I have very little interaction with drug reps these days and it's because of some of the changes that have gone on. So my university and by extension my hospital have very strict rules and these have come into place in most universities for the past five or ten years. So you cannot accept any gifts from pharma pharmaceutical companies. So as little as a pen, as most as much as like your free trip or my lobster dinner, mm. you cannot accept those. What you can do is I can attend a talk that's sponsored by a drug company. That's fine. And say it's at a restaurant, but I have to pay for my own meal. The only person who can get their meal paid for is the physician who is giving the talk because they're giving a talk and getting something in exchange for their time, Got which is it which is fine. So I wasn't really going to a lot of these talks anyway, but now we definitely, you know, I, I, I definitely don't. The drug reps... Are, no more free ice cream for you. <laughs> the drug reps also can't <laughs> just show up to our clinic and be like, oh, okay, hey, I, I'm here. Can I just talk to you about this? They can't do that anymore. That's right. prohibited here. Just to be clear, they can do that at clinics worldwide, but your particular clinic and your yeah, hospital. And my, and my anything associated okay. with my university. So that's right. So these okay. drop-ins with like a plate of muffins, you know, or donuts or something, just 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 like come by and drop these off for your clinic staff. Those still just, happen in the community, but they do not happen in my right. university or my hospital. If it happens to you, you just take your arm and you just shove all of the donuts on the ground and go take that and I, that, kick that, them? No? I don't. But I, but if they show up to clinic, I'm like, you can't do this. You need to leave. Like, I'm. these are the rules mm. and these are the rules that and, – and, and to be honest with you, I agree with these rules. I don't think they should be doing it. So sometimes they do – one of the things that they can sometimes give is what we're, what are called unrestricted educational grants. So in other words, if we have a training program, if we're offering a course, you know, you can say, okay, well – 
how about you give us some money to help support the course, okay? But, and we may include the logo saying sponsored by, but that's the most that will happen. And you're allowed to do that, but you need to disclose that. If it's, especially if it's a university run course, you need to disclose this. And they can have zero input on the content of the course. Okay, so uh, so often I'll say like, okay, well, we want to have this training program, we want to do this course, will you give us an unrestricted educational grant? And the last time I asked one of these drug reps, because I scheduled a meeting with them, they allowed to schedule a meeting, come into my office. This guy was sweating, by the way, like Roddy Dangerfield or Chris <laughs> Farley. It was like craziness. I'm like, am I, am I that intimidating? He, he's Probably. like, yeah, I just want to share you some, some of the information on our drugs. I'm like, hold it right there. I know how to read scientific literature. I know about different drugs I prescribe. You don't need to walk me through anything with your bias. And I don't want to hear this. I know your drug exists. I'll read the research and I'll decide whether I want to prescribe it or not. You don't have to tell me anything. But mm. I said, you with your BSc in biology. <laughs> I'm a doctor for God's sake. <laughs> oh, you mean him with his BSc in biology? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I was oh, okay, doing you. Doing I was you. doing you <laughs> talking to him. So yeah. I, I really have no, no time for that. But I'm like, if you want to give us an unrestricted educational grant for our training program, that'd be fine. He's like, well, yeah, I can't, I can't really do that. But if you want me to do a, a, a drug dinner, a drug sponsored dinner where we can have, I'm like, just stop talking. Like, I'm not interested in this. Stop talking, but keep sweating. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> so I, I wonder what that was. So, and, and we know that these restrictions do work, right? In terms of, uh, of this. I mean, that's basically my interactions these days with drug reps. Very minimal. I, I don't think most of them don't like me because I'm pretty strict with these rules. And so they, they don't email me. They may email my colleagues, but they don't really email me or bother me that much. Okay, so my final question on this, and I know it was going to be very specific to you, but I, I wanted to know your feelings on this because as a lay person, a person of the lay that I am, also with a university education, and I've, I've been on, you know, there's two university campuses I've been to. You mean like in your you life, see this, you mean like you've attended two universities? No, I've attended two universities. You do see the, for example, you know, the GlaxoSmithKline building, the mm -hmm. Merck Frost building, the whatever. You see buildings on university campuses that is hundreds of millions of dollars spent to erect a building on a university campus a that's not done for their health that is done with something in mind i want to know what that something is and b why is that allowed i mean i'm sure in the position of the university you're like oh they're going to give us this much money and we can get a new science building great but it's like you know, you're turning away free samples. This is like for four years, you are going to the Pfizer building. Every morning, your classes are in the Pfizer building, and it's in your head as a aspiring doctor or scientist. I mean, that's incredible marketing, but it feels, it feels like it feels unethical to me. Right. So, I mean, and that certainly has happened in the past. I think universities are trying to accept that money less frequently, especially for things like that. But, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, they want, obviously, as you're saying, I mean, there's reasons why they would spend millions of dollars with these donations to, to universities in North America. It's because they want this idea that interaction with these companies should be the norm, right? Like, and then subconsciously, as you're saying, like, they want to influence future doctors and their prescribing practices. And part of it is like what we were saying about the textbook that I got. Those things are not allowed anymore, by the way. We'll link to this Global News article. They actually have a four-part series about this issue. It's very well done. They interviewed somebody from the University of Toronto back around when I was in Toronto in the in the early 2000s and they got a uh, they did a week long course on pain management and it was sponsored by Purdue Pharma and you know Purdue Pharma mm -hmm. currently has a class action lawsuit yeah, against it opioids uh, for related, opioids yeah. so because they make oxycontin and so i mean that kind of bias so i, wow. I think universities are moving away from that i'll give you some examples because this is still kind of occurring university of montreal received in 2017 and 2018 about almost $500,000 for various health science projects from pharma, Queen's University, 700000 or so. In 2013, McGill's Faculty of Medicine received $4 million from Merck. So mm. these things are still happening, but a lot of the companies are switching and they're, they're donating this money for research, okay? So this is a bit more complicated. Research money is hard to come by. As anybody who does research knows, especially for a bigger trials and things like that, it's hard to come by. And so 
now instead of the money being necessarily given for buildings or for but though sometimes it's for research buildings or for free trips and stuff like that they're like well we're going to give money to you guys for research so for example the university of toronto itself just one university in in canada the biggest university apotex which is a generic manufacturer donated between 1995 and 2004 2.8 million dollars GlaxoSmithKline from 94 to 20 2020 4.5 million dollars uh, Janssen from 2014 to 2019 1.6 million dollars and it goes on and on so these are donations for research so I think a lot of the times the universities are like well it's for research though it's not you know for physical things. and that research can be on anything well it's completely I don't disconnected know because a lot the, of these okay. things are not publicly available so it becomes very mm-hmm. difficult to be fair I mean I'm going to be very honest with you I collaborated on a study I've collaborated on drug studies before for sure but I collaborated one from Shire Canada they made like some ADHD medications and our project was really tangentially to ADHD and they gave us a considerable sum of money and for that and so when you personally receive money like that for a research project obviously it just goes to the research you don't get any money from that per se for a salary or anything like that but you need mm-hmm. to disclose that so that's the other thing that we do in medicine is we disclose these things that have received so like I've received money from pharma for research I can't speak to what the strings attached to some of these donations are for research if there's any if they're what we call these unrestricted grants and maybe there's a combination maybe some are unrestricted maybe some aren't but certainly there is still this influence of pharma on medical schools it's just now switched more to this research capacity now final question here as if I, you know, you cannot be anti-pharma as a doctor that's impossible but I know you do have some issues with pharma and and some of the policies where do you stand in general on this yeah i mean i i don't really like a lot of their marketing and i that's where i have the issue so kind of the topic that we talked about today but is pharma useful it 100% is useful they spend millions well actually they spend billions of dollars in research and developments for new drugs and these new drugs help my patients And I'll give you the example, as we've talked about before, I see a lot of patients with epilepsy. So there's a lot of new epilepsy drugs that come out. And I'm very keen on these drugs when they come out. The reason being is because our older epilepsy drugs, they work, but they have a lot of side effects. And those drugs, which came out 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you tried to have them come out now, they would never pass muster. They would, they're like, these have way too many side effects you know, uh, they would not be approved by the FDA. They would not be approved by Health Canada. Nobody would buy this medication. There's no way. But we have those drugs historically. All their R&D goes into refining those old drugs to make them more tolerable, more safer, less side effects, or developing new drugs that have less side effects. And by far, the new medications that come out have less side effects than the old ones because there's no way they could get to market if they had the same side effects as they did before so that's good for my patients because we're that's they're pushing things forward to try and develop these drugs again more efficacious more tolerable less side effects that's a good thing so i do appreciate what they do in that respect and if they didn't i'd have less and less to offer the patients that i see so i think we need pharmaceutical companies to be doing this Obviously, and again, we could talk about this in a future episode, but they need to recoup their costs, right, from all the R&D. And what about all the failed drugs that never make it to market, that in phase one and two trials fails out or in lab studies fails out? They invested all this money. So when they finally get their drug that comes to market, they need to try and make money from that. And so I, I understand that. I understand that need. I commend them for doing that, for pushing things forward. But on the other hand, it's just... The way they market it sometimes, I have some problems with. And I'm sure they have some problems with you as well. So that's our show for today. Ali, anything to plug? No, I think standupali.com is a place you can go. And all uh, things that are coming up, I'll... uh, put news up there i'll put news about any you know if some of these auditions i'm doing go well and turn into something i'll let people know what's happening yeah 
definitely. You know, there's a few things coming down the pipeline, but nothing confirmed. So standupali.com is the best place to go. And I'll have some, uh, I'll share good news here and there as it, uh, as it comes my way. But definitely something to plug right now immediately is this website. We have a listener base that continues to grow and we really appreciate it. We thank you for spreading the word. If you can spread the word to just two people about this podcast, if you think they would be fans and there's information in here that they would enjoy, we would really appreciate that. Absolutely. DrVcomedian at gmail.com if you want to reach out to us or on social media, DrVcomedian on Twitter on Instagram. We're everywhere. Facebook, LinkedIn. You can find us uh, just about everywhere. And please reach out to us, as Ali said. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. (laughs) 